I'm Stuart. And I'm Simon. We're both property people running our own businesses, and this podcast is just us chatting every week about the reality of anything and everything property. Now, typically, a trip to the HMRC wouldn't be something that we'd put first in a podcast, but as it's quite important in relation to our property businesses and our property investing strategies, we have put it up front because Simon has recently taken a trip to Leeds to the HMRC. So Simon, can you share a little bit more with us about why you took the trip and what you took from the trip? Yes, certainly. It it was a very nice trip to Leeds, although very short. It was just for a a one-day event that HMRC were running for software vendors who are hoping to be part of their Making Tax Digital pilot program. So this is going to be, well, that is, it's happening now and it's going to be happening over the next couple of years. And the, the reason this is happening is because Making Tax Digital is coming to get you and everyone else. <laughs> and from April 2024, it will be compulsory for anyone who has self-employment or property income of £10,000 or more to be enrolled in Making Tax Digital. And, and this is income, it's not profit. So if you receive £10,000 a year of rent or more, then you, you must be enrolled in Making Tax Digital from April 2024. And HMRC are writing their, their software related to this and all the accounting packages and software vendors, and of course, me as part of PATMA, are putting together our software to integrate with this in order to enable everyone to keep their records digitally and submit them easily, simply, and timely to HMRC. So all all I think I would really say at the moment is that it's very early days. For the time being, start exploring digital record keeping. Spreadsheets probably won't cut it. You need to start looking at something that actually has a, a full transaction history, not just a sort of total that you put into a cell in in the spreadsheet you've got to have that that full transaction history that you can trace back where your your totals come from as part of the the sort of making tax digital structure so start exploring software you can't actually do making tax digital submissions yet for for income tax self-assessment unless you're in a pilot scheme which is very very limited and extremely tightly controlled but yeah start keeping your records digitally so firstly, I just want to say that was a really good summary. And I think you've, you've bullet pointed that really well and certainly helps me. But the, just the, you've mentioned, you, you talked about spreadsheets and things. And it, I mean, if there were sort of like a headline for you in terms of what people, because you, you, you mentioned spreadsheets and I do have those spreadsheets, which I feed through to the bookkeepers particularly for my personal owned properties, because we do that separately. What's the view on that is that just going to have to be transferred into a software system or do we we don't know yet well strictly speaking in order to be making tax digital compliant you must be able to go back to the individual transaction level so it might be that you could keep those individual transaction levels sort of in rows in a spreadsheet and then the totals feed through to, to things that you then have picked up by bridging software assuming any gets created, that can then feed through to, to the, the making touch digital systems at HMRC. However, that's sort of considered not ideal because it would be even better from HMRC's point of view if those transactions could be tied all the way back to bank transactions 
And of course, in online software, you can integrate with open banking and you can actually do that. Or you could even download statements from, from your bank and that might cover it. But open, open banking is probably the way to do it, really. And that allows you to pull those digital records all the way through from the actual transactions in your bank through into your own accounts and then summarized onto HMRC for their, their tax records. And that, that's really sort of the preferred approach that HMRC would like people to, to take. And strictly speaking, to be compliant, you must have that digital record all the way back to the original transaction for individual transactions. It's not just the totals. Yeah, and it's, it's got to be one of the first things where I, I hear this government implementation where I think, well, we should have probably done this years ago. And actually, although it feels painful because change is painful, this will help us in the long term because when you talk about open banking and everything like that, and I think, well, actually, once you've got the system in place, this becomes easier. We don't have to scrabble, hopefully won't have to scrabble around with our receipts and numerous spreadsheets and, and so on. Yeah, I think in, in the long term, it will definitely be easier. But people have got to get over this, this change because you say they've got to move from paper or spreadsheets or whatever they're used to into the, the sort of more digitized world. Whereas you say you can take transactions easily from open banking or you can photograph receipts or receive digital invoices from your suppliers and, and just thinking digitally first. And once you do, those records kind of keep themselves really. And then the actual making tax digital bit of it once you're keeping all these digital records in software, it's just a click of a button. At the end of every quarter, where you've been updating your records every month, you just click a button and it sends the total straight to HMRC. So the making touch digital bit of it is really very simple, at least quarterly bit. The, the annual bit is a bit more complicated, but that's just as tax normally is anyway. So the quarterly bit is quite straightforward. And it's really about keeping those digital records. And I think it's just, it's just a change. But once people do it, as you say, it's going to be easier in the long run. But, uh, but yeah, change is difficult. So changing now our topic to mortgages. You, you Stuart, have had some I- interesting mortgage experiences recently with a, with a broker, I think. And we thought we might talk about some of the, the difficulties that people are, are having with mortgages at the moment. So do you, do you want to intro a bit more what you were, you were thinking here? Yeah, well, rather than go into my full-on rant about low customer service we'll start with a friend of mine contacted me this week because he is in the throes of purchasing a house which is in a he says a small chain of four which immediately sounded big to me because I'm used to buying rental properties investment properties and also moving when we've rented so I suddenly realized oh the real world doesn't work like that and actually four is quite small compared to some property purchasing chains but sadly two days before this chain was due to complete the the bottom of the 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 chain had their mortgage pulled two days before now they haven't been given news and my friend has obviously contacted me saying look what, what can I do how can I help this and obviously I was sort of racking my brains but of course it's very limited in terms of what you can do when the when the bottom of the chain collapses unless you wanted to turn into a bank but of course you'd need a a lot of information to do that you'd, you'd want to understand you know property itself situation because that was my view was like, oh you know if you, if you wanted to invest in a property but of course you know the, the bottom of the chain they are themselves wanting to buy that property so unfortunately 
you know, we talked a bit about it, but of course it washes out in that, unfortunately, your, your choices are very limited because it's kind of out of your hands. My only view is that I hope that someone in the banking infrastructure would support them, given that this had happened at such a late stage. But what it did bring me to thinking about was the fact that mortgages are getting pulled at that stage. And genuinely, that was the first I'd heard of it. And I picked up a paper that from the weekend that I hadn't yet read. And it said around 20%, a fifth of mortgages are starting to get pulled from the marketplace. And I just wanted to you know, speak with you about that as well to see if you'd, you'd seen anything. But the, the, the kind of initial news that I've been reading was that banks, because of the interest rate changes, are changing their products quite quickly and are there, therefore removing products. The only other thought I had in this, my friend's specific situation, was that quite, quite feasibly the mortgage could have expired. And whereas banks may have been a little bit more flexible about that for obvious reasons, they're being less so again because of the interest rates. But I wondered, have you heard anecdotally anything in your, in your circles around this or had any other thoughts? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. Banks typically offer or provide mortgage offers with either a three month or a six month window. And once they've made that offer, they're normally pretty solid in terms of keeping that. But of course, the current situation is is tricky for them. I, I'm going to throw in a little story of my own, which is old, admittedly, not the current, but from back in 2008, we were buying a new build property. So as we've mentioned before, you, you exchange early on new builds. So we'd arranged our mortgage and we'd agreed our price and we'd exchanged. And this, this mortgage had to be given a, a very specific sort of extra long validation because it was going to be a while before the, the house was built. But they, they did that and they, they provided it. And we, we went ahead, exchanged. And then, of course, builder went off and built the house and the housing market went off and collapsed. By the time we were actually due to complete, our house was now worth significantly less than we had agreed to pay for it. And I think it was about a week before we were due to complete and move in, we heard from, from our bank that they were, were withdrawing our mortgage offer. And of course, this is or would have been a, a tinsy bit of a problem <laughs> because no new bank was ever going to give us a, a new mortgage in in the market at that point because it had changed. So so yeah, we we had to phone up the bank and basically plead with them to to honor the the original offer because we were still within the the time that they had said they were going to to honor it for. And and thankfully for us they they did actually allow us to go ahead and continue with that offer even though we were paying a lot more for the property than it was was ostensibly worth at the time. So it it is very difficult. And I don't think the current market is one where properties are losing value. I mean, we we hear a lot about mortgage companies and their surveyors downvaluing at at that point. But I don't think that's really why late removal of of offers would would be happening. As you said, interest rates, that I think is the the real reason at the moment. I've heard in, in property events recently from mortgage brokers speaking that the, the mortgage companies are pulling offers, as in, the, and they're pulling products generally. Some of them are doing this sort of preemptively, a bit before each of the, the Bank of England uh, base rate announcements. And some of them are doing it sort of a, a little later once they actually hear the, the announcements. 
but they're pulling them at very short notice, as in one day these products will be out on the systems, ready for applications, and then the next day they'll have shut them down. And they will apparently be shutting down current applications as well. So unless you've actually got an offer, they'll they'll say, nope, this product's no longer available. Go back to scratch, start a new application on a new product at a, at a higher interest rate. So yeah, it's I think it's a, a difficult mortgage market. But why anyone would, would lose it two days before exchange? I mean, I, yeah, I can only imagine that was a, an expiry it's, of an offer. It's, it's so frustrating. And all I could think of is, you know, it's when computer says no. You know, I think if, if you get to... And this is where people, you know, and I don't want to be disrespectful about anyone at any level, but this is where some people are just told this is what you do. And therefore, that's, you know, so so someone at the front end is saying, well, I'm sorry, it's expired. And that's what we can do. But because I think anyone if, with any common sense would say, hold on, we've agreed to this. You know, there, there, there will have to be some form of compromise, you would hope. But, you know, as you know, and, and uh, another story actually that, that came to me this morning of, of this recording was, you know, some someone I'm working with supporting in terms of their property investing sent me a message. To, so they were so they are refinancing their property, and I'm, I'm going to try and steer well away from any names of companies or anything at this stage because it's not it's not really my story to tell. So if I do, Simon, you've got to bleep me out. But essentially, <laughs> it won't be the first time <laughs> they're refinancing a property which they're going to use for further investment. Now, the bank in question has of today, so they're not going to, so it's all got, it kind of all got approved, but the bank's now put a stop on it because they've said, well, no, we're not going to give you that further, uh, or the remote mortgage stroke further borrowing because that borrowing will be used to purchase a rental property, which you're then going to use us for, which will take you over the number of properties we allow you to use with us and so I, like, so I haven't had a chance to uh, speak with you know but my uh, as a colleague on this but of course that's nonsensical isn't it because the first bridge or the, the first milestone is well are we refinancing yes where that money then okay fine they have a say in where the money uh you know they they won't give you that money for certain reasons we know that but actually if they've already approved that refinancing it, it it kind of to me, I'm like, well, you know, you're now assuming that that's going to go with you. Exactly. I mean, you you might use a different bank for the for the second loan, and that yeah, they they ah, oh, I mean, uh, yes, reject the second loan at the point of the second loan if that takes you over the limit, but don't don't reject the first one. <laughs> I know. I mean, we laugh because we've experienced enough of this, but I know when you're at the coal face, this is so frustrating. But as as, as I've written to to my friend there, I, I just sort of said, look, you know, because he said, oh, co- common sense will prevail. But as we know, common sense plus banks is not a, an often equation or an equation that I'm, I'm often seeing, to be honest. Yeah. So, something else I heard about from uh, some developers or l- landlords and developers that we, we know. They, they've got a, a block of six flats that they've built and they're, they're selling them off and they're, they're not keeping these. But they've sold off, I think, five of them. The last one, they're having trouble because I think they've said two or three times now, this last flat has fallen through because their purchasers can't get mortgages. And it's because all of the banks that their buyers are approaching are saying, we've already lent to somebody else on this building. So lending to another one would take us over our single building lending limit. So we, even though it's a completely different customer, a completely different person, we won't accept 
any further exposure on this building. And hence, the, the buyers are finding it very difficult to, to get mortgages. This is a conversation with, with a mortgage broker as well involved. And they said, this is actually quite common. Banks will often have sort of postcode exposure limits. So they will say, we will not lend to more than so many properties in, in this postcode. If you just happen to be the person that goes over that that limit for that bank, you can't get a mortgage with them for, for that house, sure. but for no yeah. other reason. Yeah, it mm. seems very strange. I mean, I can yeah. sort of understand it, but yeah, yeah I mean, unfortunate. It's that one is 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 super frustrating as well. The only thing I would say, and, and of course, as you know, I'm never going to be one to defend banks, but I would say at least that there is some rationale applied there. And I'm not a, I'm not a fan of banks, but I think that certain things we have to. I think expect is that well in in my experiences of course they have to to put in some form of risk mitigation and on the buildings thing I I do kind of get that because I feel that even just from investing in a very specific localized area I personally feel that risk exposure like if 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 an event were to happen again I don't like it because I think in terms of the banks you know not only you know we've bailed them out and etc cetera, etc cetera. so you kind of think well I'm pretty sure you could you could manage that by limiting your LTV. So at least give a product, but maybe you'll only go up to 65% loan to value. But anyway, we could we could get onto a rant here that we don't particularly have time for. <laughs> and uh, fortunately for the listeners, I don't have time to rant about my lack of service with a with a with a mortgage broker either. So we're going to move to the final subject of today. Again, another acronym for everybody epc and simon was this a day event that you went to to talk through epc yeah so i attended a, a training course this is quite unusual for me I, i'm i'm normally one for for internet research and reading but i actually went to or well attended online i didn't didn't physically move anywhere but i attended a a paid for training course and this is a a training course run by Sue Breyer, or rather her, her company, we'll include a, a link to her, her website in the show notes. It cost about £100, I think it was just under. The, the actual day event is a full day event. And it was run by a couple of guys, Don and Peter. And Peter is uh, a very experienced EPC assessor and trainer. And he was just full of knowledge. And the, the whole day generally was, was packed full of really interesting EPC knowledge experience tips tidbits etc and it was sort of focused around what can landlords do to try and get their properties either up to the required level or exempt from getting up to the required level and and i'm not going to go into all the details of the the course obviously it's a day-long course and we've got about five minutes to talk about it here so, so that wouldn't work anyway but i thought there were a couple of key takeaways that I hadn't realized that I thought were interesting to mention. One of them, which I think is my, my biggest sort of, oh my goodness moment, is that EPC ratings, and obviously the, the bands, A to F and whatever, are based on energy cost, not their carbon emissions or their, their environmental cost and impact. So that means that, of course, straight away, electricity costs more than gas per kilowatt hour. So that puts electricity at a disadvantage to to gas. And yet gas is actually, certainly now that we're generating electricity a lot more cleanly and a lot, lot in much greener ways, uh, that, that means that 
it's wrong. It's, it's counter to actually environmental improvements because it means that in almost all cases, a gas heating system will provide you a better EPC rating than some of the electricity-based ones, even though the electricity-based ones are far more efficient, far better for the environment because the electricity is being sourced greenly or could be sourced greenly. And yeah, it, it just seems counterintuitive. But but there you go. And and apparently EPCs are sort of up for, for some kind of reform in the coming years, but it's going to take a while. And I mean, did you realise this, Stuart? Did you know it was based on the cost of energy? Absolutely no idea. Sleeping in ignorance I was. And I'm already nervous now about my little flat, studio flat, because that's all electric. As you say, that is a a real eye-opening moment for me because I hadn't even considered my uh, my my naivety was the thought that it would be based on a cumulative number of factors, including you know, levels of insulation. I think we talked about that before, and its ability to retain heat and so on. But just that, oh, they, that... They, they do definitely they, they are definitely part of it. And actually, that, that feeds on to, to one of the other things. Sort of a very high level, they mentioned sort of the order of things to tackle. And the first one is insulate, because if your property is well insulated, then it reduces the amount of energy that you must put into it to heat it. And, and then whether, you're, whether that heating energy is coming from gas or electricity or whatever, if you can reduce the amount that's needed, then you're going to improve your EPC. Mm. So they said insulate, always insulate. Insulate is the, the first thing to do. Even if you've already got insulation, look at whether you could improve the insulation or extend the insulation. and then. After you're really thoroughly insulated, then look at improving the the heating system. If you're really aiming for EPC improvements, then that might actually mean going for something counterintuitive, like a gas heating system rather than an electric one, depending on your your situation. Although some electric ones can can work out well. But yeah, there's, there's not necessarily the obvious answer there. If you're targeting EPC improvements specifically rather than environmental improvements. And then only after that, should you look at doing things like installing solar panels, PV, etc., because they they'll have sort of lesser improvements overall. So yeah, it, you're you're right. There are definitely a multitude of factors that go into the overall calculation, but the the energy input element of it, whatever that is for heating, hot water, etc., is based on cost rather than environmental expense. Very good and. Every day is a school day. I've certainly learned today, and I hope uh, that's this episode has brought some information to to you, the listener, as well. And don't worry if you want more information on EPC. We are going to talk about that further. We do have a guest on our next week's podcast, which will be able to talk about that, among many other things as well. As always, if you've enjoyed the show in any way, please do leave us a rating or review on your podcast player of choice. Also, please reach out to us as Alfie Chats did recently on Twitter and just tweet us at bizofproperty, at B-I-Z of property, or go and check us out on thebusinessofproperty.com. Until we see you next week. Bye.